Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name, O. Henry, he was a short story writer at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. Perhaps his best known short story is The Gift of the Magi. Uh, that tends to be recirculated uh, at Christmas time about this young couple And she wants to buy a pocket watch chain for him. And he wants to buy beautiful combs for her long hair. And in order to do that, at the end of the story, it turns out that he sells his watch to buy the combs and she sells her hair to buy the watch chain. And uh, it talks about the wisdom of the Magi who give away, who sell what is most precious to them to give something to those they love the most. Well, uh, whether or not you've heard of it or read that or any of his stories, uh, they are, a lot of them, delightful stories. Some of them are troubling stories, but what uh, O. Henry did was he developed the technique of the surprise ending. And so he, he writes his short story, and at the very end, sometimes the very last line of the story, he flips it, and it goes in a completely different direction. Uh, Sometimes the completely different direction is tragic. But most of the time, these stories are fun and uplifting and surprising because you see this tragedy developing in the story and then right at the end, he flips it. And in the last line or the last paragraph, things work out in a surprising way. Well, he wasn't the first one to develop the surprise ending. Uh, The book of Revelation is basically that. It's a book about surprise ending. And the, uh, the surprise ending that comes at the very end is that the whole thing is reversed. Throughout the book of Revelation, there is trial, there is tribulation, there is martyrdom, there is persecution, there is opposition against Christ and His church. And it looks like the Christians are always on their back foot. It looks like the Christians are the ones who are always being cut down And it looks like the kingdom of Christ is in peril. 
But then we come to the end of the book and we have this surprise ending. No longer are the nations uh, uh, dominating against the people of God, but rather Christ is reigning over the nations along with His people and the nations are bringing their wealth into the kingdom of God. But in addition to the the mega-reversal that we find in Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, we also have these micro-reversals throughout the book of Revelation. And that's what we have in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. There is a flip, how things seem to be and how things really were or how things would be in reality. And as we have seen, for those of you who've been here, you know the flow of this, but for those of you who haven't, we always find that there is a vision, a description of Jesus. Jesus identifies himself to the church, and he describes himself to the church. And then there is a description of the condition of the church, and then there is an exhortation or a rebuke to the church, and then there are final calls to the church to respond to what Jesus has said to them. Now, what we have seen up to this point is that the descriptions of Jesus flow out of the vision that we saw in chapter 1. This description of Jesus is something of an exception. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. That doesn't come out. You will look in vain in chapter 1 in the vision to find that description of Jesus. That doesn't flow out of that vision. But there is one detail. There is one detail from the the vision in chapter 1. And the only detail in chapter 1 that he picks up is that Jesus holds a key. Jesus holds a key. And if you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 18, it says... The living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So he had keys in chapter 1 in that vision, and now we find out that he has another key as well. And that's the only overlap here. But it says here that he has the key of David, and the one who has the key of David can open and no one will shut, and will shut and no one will open. Now this becomes significant as we look at what happened in the church of Philadelphia. And we have seen how the description of Jesus always is, is uh, relevant to the condition of the church. And as we will see, the church was being shut out. And so there was this question of shutting and opening in the church of Philadelphia. Um, the way that God uh, or that Jesus describes himself here, in addition to the key, it says this, the words of the Holy One, the True One. This is remarkable. The Holy One, the True One. What what Jesus does here is He applies, once again, we've seen this multiple times, He applies titles of God to Himself. Titles of God to Himself. And once again we see that uh, this is the perspective of the New Testament, that Jesus is God in human form. Now you may or may not believe that, but it is all through the New Testament There are those who don't believe that, and they have gone to extremes to try to remove the teaching of the divinity or the deity of Christ from the New Testament. And what they have done is gone through and tried to retranslate certain very explicit verses. But they have left so many, because there are so many like this, that very easily take titles of God and apply them to Jesus. What are the titles of God that show up here? 
the Holy One, the True One. Let's look at, for example, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. It's on page 668 of the Bibles that you have. Isaiah 40, 25. It says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Says the Holy One. And then if you look in Revelation itself, if you go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it says this, They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But actually, this translation left out um, a definite article. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, the holy and true. And who's it describing here? It's describing God. It's describing the Sovereign Lord. So go back to Revelation chapter 3, and it says this Jesus is what? He is the Holy One, the True One. So it presents Him as God, and it presents Him as one who has another key. So far, so good. Now let's look at the condition of the church. And we find that beginning in verse 8. And here Jesus begins the same way he begins in five of the seven letters when he describes the condition of the church. He says, I know your works. However, he doesn't go like he does in some cases and detail their works. He rather gives a, a, a summary of their works. And what he says is, you have little power. I know your works. I know that you have but a little power. Uh, they probably had little power in the society, little political power, little financial power, little social power, little society. They were weak in their society. He says, I know that. I know that. But in spite of that, he says, you have kept my word. I know that you have a little power, and yet you have kept my word. And then he says, what does that mean to keep his word? Part of what that means is, you have not denied my name. So he gives the positive, and he says the negative as well. He says, you have positively, you've kept my word. And on the negative side, you haven't done the negative. You have not denied my name, which gives us the idea that there was pressure on them to do what? To deny his name. So they stood up, and they didn't deny his name. So it looks like they were. it was a costly situation to hold on to his name. And then in verse 10, he says as well, um, I'm sorry, in verse, yes, in 10, it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Perhaps it would be better to translate that because you have kept the word of my patient endurance. The word of my perseverance. And uh, this, this word perseverance or patient endurance is all through uh, the, new, the, uh, the, the book of Revelation. And we find it from the very beginning. Uh, John says in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So here it says, you have kept my word and you have kept my word of uh, the word of my patient endurance. Perhaps, perhaps indicating that they have kept the word of Jesus' patience endurance. That is the fact that Jesus himself patiently endured. Jesus himself persevered. And they have followed in his footsteps, holding on to the word about his patient endurance. That's all it says about their works. It doesn't detail them. It just says, you've kept my word. Great job. You have not denied my name. You have continued 
to persevere. And he gives them, therefore, only one command. He doesn't give them any rebuke. Only two of the churches receive no rebuke from Jesus. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. So this is the second of the two. The only thing he says to them is in verse 11. The only instruction he says, Hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. That doesn't sound like a very, a very uh, great accomplishment, doesn't it? it just, hold on. That's what he tells them. He says, you have kept my word, you haven't denied my name, and all he says to them is, hold on, hold on. That doesn't sound like anything very grandiose, does it? Just hold on. That's all he tells them to do. Hold on, keep fast what you have. But actually, in the, in the whole book of Revelation, that's the message. That's the message to the Christians. Not just to the Church of Philadelphia. That's the message to the Christians in Philadelphia. That's the message to the Christians throughout the world. That's the message to Christians today. If you have something from Jesus, don't lose it. Just hold on to what you have. And he says, do that so that no one may seize your crown. Now, this is a little curious. Who would possibly seize their crown? It's not clear who might seize their crown. Rather, it's more a question of them relinquishing their crown. And we have seen that the crown is eternal life, the crown of life. So while at first glance it may not seem to be a great accomplishment, we need to understand that we are not called on to do great things. Christ is the one who has done something great, and we're simply to hold on to what He has done. We are not called on to do grandiose things that might bring glory to ourselves. We are called to hold on to what Christ has done for us. That's the message to the Christians in those days. That's the message to us. And if we, we look at the kind of things that they, were, they had and were supposed to hold on to, we can think of these sort of things. When you are tempted to deny His name, hold on confessing His name, even if it costs you your life. When you are tempted to go aside into theological error, hold on to the truth. When you are tempted to immorality, hold on to purity. When you are tempted to accommodation with the society, hold on to your integrity. You see, it may not sound like a big thing, but actually it is to hold on to the end. And yet, once again, we realize it is not up to us to win the victory. Christ has won the victory, so hold on to that victory to share in it in the end, because Christ has secured it for you. That's the condition of the church and the call to the church. Just keep going. And then there are a number of promises. And the weight of this letter is on these promises to the church. Here we have something that Jesus has already done, and then he states some things that he is going to do. In verse 8, we have what he has already done. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, this is kind of curious, and there's some debate about what this means, that he has opened a door before them, and nobody can close that door. In Paul's ministry, this refers to Ministry opportunities. We can look at at least one example of that in Acts chapter 14, this idea of the open door. Acts chapter 14, verse 27. It says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, by the way, Paul and Barnabas had gone and done ministry. Now they're coming back to their sending church. And when they had 
arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There's the image, isn't it? He'd opened a door of faith. And then we find that three other times, 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Colossians 4.13. He talks about door of ministry opportunity. And I would love to go with that in this sermon today and talk about the open door that God has for us. And He does. But that should be a sermon from Acts 14, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, or Colossians 4, because I don't think that's what he's getting at here. As much as I would like to preach about that and tell about the wonderful opportunities we have, I'll save that for another time. It looks like what he's talking about here is a door to the kingdom of God itself. Because he's referring to that, that strange prophecy that we saw back in Isaiah chapter 22. And if you want to go back and look at that, we can see what's going on here. He says to Shebna, you will be taken out as the, the steward, as the administrator, and I will put Eliakim in your place. And in verse 21, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So Jesus is almost quoting from that prophecy. So what's going on in that prophecy? It's a a manager of the kingdom of God. And that manager has the key to the kingdom of David, which was the kingdom of God. And he could open or close that kingdom. And uh, God says to this new, this new steward, this new manager, I will give you this key, and if you open, no one can shut. And if you shut, no one can open. But then we find that even that manager was like a peg, firmly driven, and even it sheared off. Even it could not bear the weight of the kingdom of David. And now we come to the New Testament, and we find that the greater son of David is the one who now holds the key to that kingdom of David, which is, in fact, the kingdom of God. So what is he saying to the Philadelphian Christians? He is saying to them that, I'm the one who lets you into the kingdom. I'm the one who has the key to the kingdom. And if I let you into the kingdom, you cannot be shut out of it. In the context, we think what was happening in Philadelphia was this. It seems that the Jewish synagogue was trying to shut these Christians out of the kingdom of God and saying, you don't belong here. You have no part in the inheritance that is of the Messiah, the son of David. Only we do, you do not. And that's why there is this this reversal here in verse 9, I will make those, very strong language, this is the second time we've seen it, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is one of these surprising twists in the story here because this is a turning the tables on a prophecy. Once again, in Isaiah, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, it's on page 691. This was a prophecy that says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. 
They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And this was an expectation in Israel, that all those nations out there that had been persecuting Israel, one day those nations were going to come and bow down before the Israelites and say, we recognize you, that you really are the people of God. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's turning the tables. He's saying, no, the the synagogue, the local synagogue, they really weren't Jewish anymore because they had rejected the plan of God for them. And rather, what they were going to do is one day they would come and bow down before the feet of the Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, and say, we recognize that God loves you. That's what it says here. It says, I will make those who say they're Jews, but they're not. They lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, they will learn that I have loved you. Do you see what he's doing here? He's reversing the prophecy. So this would have been a shocking thing for the Jews who were expecting the nations to come. And in fact, they would have to bow down before some of these from the nations who had received the Son of David as their Messiah. Um, this is the, the, the first thing he said that he's already done. So he's opened the kingdom of God. Even if other people are shutting you out, trying to exclude you from the kingdom, don't worry because Jesus is the one who has the key. He's the one who can let you in and nobody can shut you out. The second thing, he said he would keep them from the hour of trial that was about to come on the world. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, uh, what is the, the hour of trial that was about to come on the whole world? Well, read the rest of the book of Revelation. It's all about trials that were about to come on the whole world. One of the hard things about interpreting Revelation is knowing when these things either happened, are happening, or will happen. And these are three different ways that the book of Revelation has historically been read. As things that already happened in the first century, as things that perpetually happen or as things that are going to happen in the future. And we need to remember that we ourselves are 2,000 years after these things were written, so it could be that things were, that were future in those days are past for us. But here, in the context, because this was addressed specifically to the Philadelphian Christians at the end of the first century, that God was going to spare them from a trial that was about to come, that it seems that the best way to read this is this trial was already has already passed for us. Which means that uh, this doesn't uh, specifically apply to us. However, we need to remember that the, the book of Revelation is for the church in all ages. And so the lessons that they were to learn from their trials are the same lessons that we are to learn from our trials. Because certainly, even if whatever trial this was has already passed, there are more to come. And we can count on that. We can certainly count on that. And not all of the book of Revelation has already happened. There are more to come in the future for us. We also need to be careful. We need to be careful here because it says that he would keep the Philadelphian Christians from that hour of trial. We cannot simply assume that he will keep us from all trials. And that there is somehow a promise here for us to be kept from trials. 
In fact, if we read all of Revelation, this is an anomaly. This is an anomaly that the Christians would be kept from the trial. And in fact, if we remember some of the letters that were already written, for example, to that that faithful church in Smyrna, he said, you will have tribulation. You will go through tribulation. And so God decided to keep the Philadelphians from this trial. He decided to keep the Smyrnans in a trial and enable them to persevere in the midst of that trial. But however it may be, if God chooses to rescue His Christians out of a trial, or if He if He decides to leave His children in the midst of a trial, either way, there is victory. He can either keep us from the trial or keep us faithful in the trial. And if we put these letters together, that's what we have. We have this message. And we may, we may pray that we would be rescued from trials. Indeed, certainly a good thing to pray. And He may decide to do that in our cases. Or He may leave us in that trial and call us to faithful perseverance and endurance no matter what may come. Whether they are protected from trials or triumph in the midst of them, Jesus will give the conquerors several benefits. And here he piles them on. This, this letter is heavy on benefits. And verse 12, the one who conquers, and by the way, what did we see was conquering? It wasn't doing great exploits, it was simply holding on and persevering. That's what conquering is, holding on to our faith and living our faith, no matter what happens. That's conquering. He says, to the one who conquers, this is what he'll do, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That's the first thing he will do for the conqueror. Now, this image indicates permanence, doesn't it? And it's obviously not talking, it's using a metaphor, it's using an expression here, because we'll find later that there is no temple. There is no temple in the, the consummated kingdom because God is in their midst. They don't need a temple. So what's this saying? I will make you dwell permanently with God. I will give you an eternal relationship with God. And this would have resonated particularly with the Philadelphians. Because Philadelphia uh, had the misfortune of building their city on a fault line. On a fault line, like, like a Los Angeles or a Mexico City. Uh, it was built on a fault line, and so they were constantly experiencing tremors. And the city was constantly cracking. And so guess what? Many people didn't want to live in that city. And it had rich vineyards outside the city. So many of the people lived outside the city instead of inside that shaking city. And this would have appealed to them, wouldn't it? He says, I will make you a column. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And then never shall he go out of it. They can probably remember all the times that they ran out of the city as the tremors started. But he says, never. You won't have to do that anymore. You will be permanently there. In addition to that, it probably refers back to the Isaiah 22 prophecy. What happened to that peg that was so firmly established? Eventually what happened? It gave way. It sheared off. And so this contrast, this permanent pillar, contrasts with that that peg that looks so firm, but it eventually sheared away as well. In addition, Jesus said to making them a pillar, He said He would write on them. He would write on them three names. He says, once again in verse 12, Never shall they go out of it. I will write on him 
the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So he says, I will write on the conquerors, those who persevere to the end. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. So what do we have here? We have ownership. I will write on you the name of my God. They will indicate that you belong to Him. I will write on the conquerors the name of the city of my God. And here we have citizenship. So we have ownership. We have citizenship. This one belongs. This has the passport that says that he or she belongs here in the people of God, in the city of God. And then we have I will write my own new name, Jesus' own new name. That's a bit enigmatic. We're not sure exactly what he means by that own new name. But in Revelation chapter 9, 19 rather, Revelation chapter 19, page 1143, there are two names of Jesus that are mentioned. This is when he comes in riding on a white horse. He is clothed, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And then if you go down to 16, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't know exactly what this new name is. It could be one of those. Um, but whatever that new name is, it is Jesus' name. So we have, we have ownership by God. We have citizenship in the city of God. And we have kinship with Jesus because the Son's name will be written on us as well if we persevere. So, what's the message? Very simple. The message is, hold on. Hold on. Very simple, isn't it? Hold on. No matter what might be happening in your life, hold on. No matter what might be happening tomorrow, hold on. Keep going. Hold on to what you have. Well, what do you have? Well, if you have faith in Christ... You have a relationship with God. You have entrance into the kingdom of God. You have, you are owned by God. You are possessed by God. You are loved by God. You have citizenship in His kingdom. And you have kinship with Jesus. We already saw, let's think about and, and close with thinking about these three keys. We saw in chapter one that He has the key to death, which means really that He has the key to life, right? In other words, he can, he can open death so that we can enter into life. He also has the key to hell or to Hades, which means that he can release from the power of hell to give heaven. So the key to, to Hades is to release and to give heaven. And now we find that he has the key to the kingdom of David, which is the kingdom of God. But let's think about how he came into possession of all those keys. How did he come into possession of the key of death? which gives life by dying and rising again. How did he come into possession of the key of hell? By experiencing hell for us so that he might give us heaven. How did he come into possession of the key to the kingdom of God? By being excluded from it himself. Do you remember where he was crucified? John says he came to his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And Hebrews makes a big point of this. He was crucified not inside the city walls. He was crucified outside the city walls. And this harkens back to 
Leviticus chapter 16 where the scapegoat was driven outside the camp so that he could bear the sins of the people and take them outside the camp. He was excluded. He was exiled so that we might be included. So he has the key of death which gives life. He has the key of hell which gives us heaven. He has the key of the kingdom which gives us entrance. So his death means life for us. His experience of hell means heaven for us. And His exclusion means inclusion for all who will believe. Believe this and keep believing it no matter what happens until the end. Just hold on. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for another call to hold on to what we have. We thank You for what we have in Christ. We have a kingdom. We have an eternal relationship. We have stability. We have permanence. We have life. We have heaven. And we pray, O God, that You would enable us to hold on. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what trials You will allow us to go through or from what trials You will spare us. But we pray that whatever comes tomorrow and the day after that, that we would be able to hold on to what we have by believing in the One who conquered over death, who conquered over hell, who was Himself excluded so that we might have life and heaven and be included in the kingdom of God. We pray, O God, that You would give us those ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.